0: psalm 11 in the lord i take refuge how can you say to my soul flee like a bird to your mountain for behold the wicked bend the bow they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do the lord is in his holy temple the lord's throne is in heaven his eyes see His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain colds on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. That's epic poetry. Greetings, friends. It is wonderful to be here. I love that we are one church, two locations. And so from your friends, brothers and sisters in Christ and Shakopee uh, to you today, greetings. And uh, I just want to tell you that God is at work and there are some fun things happening all over the place and uh, it, is, it is just a joy to see that, not just in Shakopee, but also here, as you saw some teams being commissioned over the last few weeks, and even today, as they're going out and making a difference, as our youth are, are graduating and going out into the world, there are some exciting things that we get to be a part of, and that's fun. I need your help today, though. I am going to share a very simple uh, illustration in just a moment. In fact, it is going to be uh, woefully short <laughs> of, uh, of what it could be or maybe even what it should be, but I think the simplicity of it is going to help us to see the principle in it. So would you be willing to work with me today a little bit, even knowing that it's going to be a little bit silly, kind of ridiculous? Are you okay with that? You're like, well, it depends what you're asking of me, Kenny. Uh, I feel like I'm going to get put on the spot. You're not. So you're good. Uh, but I want you to imagine for a moment that I have never used a chair, okay? This is the illustration. I want you to imagine I've never used a chair before. Sure, I've sat on the ground and maybe even uh, uh, knelt down, but I've never really used a chair. And so I have heard that there there, are, there is this invention called a chair and I have been told that if I use it it would be very helpful to me and so should I use it or not is my question I'm not sure if we should but today as I look around I start to recognize some things that you're all sitting in chairs exactly like this one And many of you are roughly the same height as I am, the same size. And so I'm starting to get a little more comfortable that perhaps I could use this chair. And my legs are kind of tired and I'd kind of like to sit down. So I want to see that your message and your example encourages me to use this chair. So uh, gingerly, cautiously, carefully, I sit in the chair. And I recognize that actually is everything that I hoped it would be. <laughs> and I see that because I, I, I mean, I was willing to trust that because I saw you doing the same thing. I'm going to give you another scenario. In this other scenario, you are not here. You are not witnesses. I have heard stories of these chairs and I'm told that's one. And in this setting, because I don't know how to use it, because I don't know what to do with it, I I might try to sit on it. You can imagine me sitting on this chair this way. It would be terribly uncomfortable. I'm not going to do it. But it would be terribly uncomfortable, wouldn't it? It wouldn't take long before I'd go, you know what? It was just better when I sat on the floor. It It was just better when I did my own thing. I've heard people talk about how good chairs are, but that doesn't seem to make sense. It it doesn't really work for me. I don't know how to use it. Uh, I don't know how to apply this correctly. Now, you see the two examples that I've given, ridiculous examples, of course, but perhaps the principles are already starting to come alive in your own mind that... Hey, in the first setting, I was able to enjoy this chair the way that it was intended to be enjoyed because I saw other people and I heard testimony from others about how to do it. But uh, when I am on my own, when I have to try to figure it out without the company of others, I maybe will misapply it. I could misapply it in such a way that I could hurt myself or injure myself, at minimum be uncomfortable, And I would say that that has been true throughout the world. That we have this amazing responsibility to share our testimony, to share our story, our faith story with those who have never experienced this faith. To rightly apply this faith so that they aren't hurt or injured. In fact, I'll say it this way that Throughout time, the the scriptures have been given to us as examples of how to apply this faith, to to live it out in such a way that that, uh, we get to experience the fullness of this faith. But it's been given by people who have experienced this almighty God. And outside of that, there are many opportunities to be hurt and injured, to misapply it, to misunderstand it. And so today, we're going to jump into Psalm chapter 11. I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. You're welcome to get one back there. If you saying, oh, I brought my phone, that's great. Use your phone if your Bible's on it. I, in faith, am going to trust that that's actually what you're doing. So uh, with that in mind, would you join me as we pray? Lord, we do love you, and we thank you and praise you. And we ask, O Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And even as we bring up a ridiculous example of a chair, (laughs) we immediately see the profound principle of sharing our faith, of sharing testimony of what you have done, of what you are doing, and what you will do. And Lord, as we look at this example from David, we, we would ask that just in a very real way you would speak to us today, that we would rightly apply your word to our lives, not injuring ourselves in unnecessary ways, in ways that you didn't intend, but rather, Lord, that we would walk in faith in such a way that uh, you could test us and would test us. And that the testing of our faith would produce something beautiful and rich and dynamic and life-giving and life-receiving. Oh, Lord, we would ask for that today. As we look upon you and look to see where you're going, oh, Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And it's in Jesus Christ precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in Psalm chapter 11. As you're turning to Psalm chapter 11, I, I should tell you we're beginning a new series called Epic Poetry. And in this series, we're learning a little bit about how to worship, how to apply our faith, how to live out a life of worship. The book of Psalms broken down into five books. So these chapters are broken into five different books. The Uh, Psalm 11 is in the first book. In this particular book, uh, the authors are going to identify some distresses, some things that cause uh, them to be uncomfortable and at times even perhaps waver in their faith. Uh, Not just that, but we're also going to see how we can be confident in the Lord because of the testimony of those who have gone before us. As I've alluded to, we recognize that in the scriptures tell us that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and that, that we are a part of a body and that as a part of this body and surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, oh, we have stories, narratives, not made up things, but rather true stories, real stories that we can apply to our lives as we better understand them. Psalm chapter 11 is a psalm of David and and many theologians believe that uh, David is in this unique situation where the palace is under siege. And as the palace is under siege, some decisions are having to be made that there is a coup that is coming from without to within and decisions have to be made. What will the leadership do? How will the king respond? His advisors come to him and, and make some suggestions, And David is stuck with having to make a step of faith despite their suggestions. And in that place of making a step of faith, he's going to have to have some concrete answers. And so you're going to see the movement of this psalm go from a statement of faith to some fears regarding the circumstances around David. And then to some facts that... that are absolutes that David can then rely on as he takes his step of faith. Today, what I'll do is we'll read through this again. I'll speak to a few things regarding this passage, and then we'll walk through it as we break it down and better apply it to our lives. You ready? Three of you are ready? That's great. Really really appreciate you three. Uh, Ready? All right, here we go. Let's look at... uh, Psalm chapter 11. I love the way that David starts off with this strong statement of faith. In the Lord, I take refuge. Keep this in mind. That David in this statement is the king of Israel. He he could say, because of what the Lord has given me, I can take refuge. Because of who I am. I could take refuge because of how much wealth I have. I can take refuge. But he doesn't. He discounts all of that as if he sweeps it off to the side. And he says, in the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, I take refuge. The idea here, as will become a little more clear in just a moment, is that David is identifying himself uh, with the same humility that a bird would. A bird that has predators, perhaps even hunters, who are after it. In the Middle East, even today, you'll see that there, there are these kind of uh, smallish birds that hide in rocks, that, that, that get down in the clefts of these rocks so that they are protected, completely surrounded Uh, by these rocks, they have no worries in those places. And David is saying, "I, I, the king of Israel, am like that. And God is like that rock, that refuge. He has completely surrounded me, and I have backed myself into this place of protection because God is my protection. Continuing on, he's going to now transition from the statement of faith to what his advisors have told him. So his advisors have made some comments, and, and rightfully so. Like what these advisors say are true statements. And, and so follow along, if you would, as, as we look and try to understand David's reasoning. He's, he's saying, no, I, in the Lord I've taken refuge. Uh, how can you say to my soul, the word soul there, uh, it just means complete person. How can you say to me, is another way of saying it. How, how can you say to everything that I am, how how could you speak to me like that, is the idea. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Leave your place of protection and go to the mountain. How can you tell me that? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And as, as we look at this passage, you might say, well, If if this is about hunting, hunting in the dark is generally a bad idea, Uh, not super helpful, but that's not the point of this passage. It's, It's not about the hunter. In fact, this is about someone taking siege to the palace. So this is an onslaught coming. But the idea is this you don't know where your enemies are, they're hidden in the dark. And as you make yourself vulnerable, what might happen? Well, they might bend the bow. And and they're going to take shots at you because you're upright in heart. Then he goes on to say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's possible that that word foundations is used as an idiom to refer to David's leadership as king. And so the idea then is... If David leaves Jerusalem, if he goes to one of the surrounding mountains, if if he leaves this place, the onslaught of the enemy is going to take over, and what will happen to the righteous, those who choose to follow God, those who love God, those who obey God? What's going to happen to them? Because those who are coming in are not God-fearers. What will happen to them in the absence of his leadership? So these are the things that the advisors seem to be saying. And then David steps back in with his own thoughts. And he says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. Now, David has moved from Shiloh to Jerusalem. And the tabernacle is now there. David wants to build the house of God, the temple right there. But God says, no, wait a minute, David, that's not for you. You have too much blood on your hands. That will be for your son. And so the temple is ultimately going to be built in Jerusalem, but not by David. The point still is this, that there is a place where there is a gathering, a worship of Yahweh. That worship is sacrificial for sure, but it is also a place of God's absolute presence. Keep in mind that uh, this is certainly true in the tabernacle and in the first temple In the second temple temple. The Ark of the Covenant is not there. The Shekinah glory is not there. But the Son shows up in the second temple in Jerusalem. So you have the Father in the first temple and in the second temple you have the Son and you're going to find out a little bit later where the third temple is and who inhabits that. Let's keep going on. Uh, uh, Let's keep looking at this. So there is this place of worship and then and then the, the message moves just a little bit. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Oh, I thought he was in Jerusalem. What do you mean he's in heaven? What's going on? Make up your mind here, David. Well, there's a little bit more to it than that. For sure, God's presence is in Jerusalem, but his throne is in heaven. And David is trying to take our attention to the position of God, the functional description of who God is functionally. God is in heaven and he sees everything. He sees you, he sees me, he sees the intention of our actions, he sees it all. God reigns supreme. And David is identifying that in this passage. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. That's kind of a weird phrase, his eyelids test. Uh, I, I recognize that that doesn't really translate really well into English, certainly into modern American English, it doesn't make sense. This term is often just translated as eyes. And so we get the the idea that David is using this poetic language to say, to really emphasize that God sees you. God sees you, he sees you, he absolutely sees you. Okay? And then there's this matter of testing, that God tests. Now, some people will uh, use another word here. And if you do this, it's wrong. I'll just tell you. And it's the word tempted. Testing and tempting are two different things that's identified in James chapter 1. There is a testing of our faith that is good. It produces fruit. It produces uh, richness. It's like purifying gold that is testing a person. Tempting is something different. Uh, a great example, an easy example for us to understand is that in the garden. God tests Adam and Eve by saying, this tree you cannot eat of. The tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat of that tree. That's a test. It's to prove their faith, their growth. Tempted, Satan shows up and says, did God really say that? Nah, he just doesn't want you to be like him. Come on, what's the big deal, right? Like, that's temptation, different. It's also coming from different places too, right? Okay, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Oof, we don't really like that. We're not supposed to say that word, hates. Uh, But here... This word hate is even connected with God. So how can God hate and God can love if it's true that God is love? Like that's a part of his character of who he is. How can he love and hate? Like that, that seems like putting light and dark in the same place. It doesn't really make sense. It can't happen. So, so what does this mean? It's a good question. Well, we are talking about two different things. So first of all, love is not just a feeling uh, love is the very character or a part of the character of God, wholly and completely. God is love. It's who he is. Even if he hates, he hates in complete and utter love. Like, that is where it's coming from. We also recognize that this word "hates" is used situationally. It's associated with a feeling. It is one of those things that is, okay, this action, this behavior is what God hates, This is not judgment yet, but it can become judgment. So God's soul, his whole being, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Those who are operating outside of God's plan, his perfect will, the reason that he created, the reason that he designed, those who choose to not be obedient uh, to God as they are choosing that disobedience, God hates that. We find out that that is true with Esau and Jacob. Jacob, God loves, because why? He takes this step of faith, even though sometimes Jacob does some really ridiculous things. And Esau, who doesn't care for what God has said, who doesn't respect what God has given him, uh, uh, God hates, why? Because of these, these actions that are associated with it. Continuing on, let him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, almost conjuring up this the 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 word picture of Sodom and Gomorrah being burnt up. And then he goes on to say this about the character of God. The Lord is righteous. If you have your Bibles, want to encourage you to underline that. The Lord is righteous. And here's where it becomes even more clear. He loves righteous deeds. Uh, the, the word there that's used in Hebrew is the same word that's used for almsgiving. Almsgiving. So what is almsgiving? Almsgiving is when you know that there are people in need, then you offer uh, resources. Primarily it's financial, but there are other ways of offering resources to people who are in need. Uh, that's almsgiving. So Let's keep it a little more clear. There were groups of people who didn't have resources to live. They they didn't have food. They didn't have shelter. And they were completely dependent for a variety of reasons on the good nature of other people. That is called righteousness. It's the same word for almsgiving. How is that completely fulfilled? Well, obviously, it's it's in Christ, right? Right. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? We see that the, the Lord extended this righteousness, this almsgiving he gave to us. He's the uh, perfect picture of what this word, this term righteous really means. So while we were yet sinners, when we couldn't save ourselves, when we were absolutely dependent on someone else because we were, uh, we were in sin and dealing with the consequences of those sins, uh, sin and death was our lot. We had no victory, not because of who we are, not because of how much money we had, not because of where we were born, uh, not because of the place that we were born, not because of the jobs that we had. Nothing could save us. We were absolutely dependent on someone else for salvation And that's where God showed up. That's almsgiving. And that's the picture here that is given. He loves righteous deeds. He loves it when those who have look for those who have not and care for them, especially as it relates to their soul. The upright or the level shall behold his face. It's so a unique term in Hebrew, the, the, the term face. It's, it's used a few different ways. It certainly can mean to look at someone's face. But it can also mean to look at where someone is going. Similarly, in Exodus, Moses says, show me your glory. And God hides him up in the rocks, right? Puts his hand over so Moses can't see him. Because if he sees the glory of God, the full glory of God, he'd surely die. So he puts his hand. And what do we find out from scriptures that he sees his back. But the implication there in, in the Hebrew language is that not just that Moses saw his back, but he saw where he's been. In like manner, not just seeing his face, but where he's going. And that gives a lot of security for us as we have to make decisions of faith. How will we walk in faith? So let's look at this. Three movements throughout this passage. The first is a statement of faith that David makes. And it is absolute faith. I want you to recognize that faith can have a broad spectrum of action as it relates to Scripture. There were times that for David, he had to, uh, he had to run. So, for example... Saul wants to kill him. Saul is the king of Israel at the time, and David is not the king. And Saul attempts to kill him. David runs. What was David's step of faith? To be obedient, but to run away. There's another time in David's life where David has to make some decisions to confront. He has animals that are trying to kill his sheep. And so he responds in faith by trying to protect these sheep. And so he attacks. Uh, Another time that is similar. Because David had uh, walked in faith and had seen God at work, there is this giant who is calling out curses to the God of Israel. And as a step of faith, David confronts the giant. And you know the story how David gets the victory in God. God rather gives him victory. So faith can look a few different ways. For David, in this moment, as, there is, uh, as the palace is being sieged, as there is a coup taking place, David recognizes that he has to back in to, uh, to the protection of God, that God is his refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge, not on my ability to hide, though David had done that before. That might have been a very natural response even. Well, I'll just go Hide. But in this setting, in this situation, he's able to discern God's plan. And his step of faith is to brace himself in God's protection and to stay. It's a step of faith. I wonder what is going on in your own world right now where you are at a crossroads of needing to make a decision. And needing to take a step of faith. I wonder what that next step of faith for you may be. In this case for David, it was to trust in God as his refuge. What might it be for you? Because there is reality that there are things going on in the world and those things bring fear. For uh, David, he is being told there is an onslaught coming. They're going to attack at night and you are like a bird compared to what is happening and you are very vulnerable. And David recognizes that, and those things are absolutely true. Yeah, we are being attacked. Yeah, I could die. Yeah, those things are true. And then what happens to the people around us if this godly leadership leaves? Then what? And these are all realities and questions uh, that are swirling around that have to be answered. And so I would put that also on our lap. of saying, what's going on in our world around us? Maybe it's health. Maybe there's something going on with your health right now where you're, you're having to make some decisions like, oh, Lord, I need to take refuge in you because uh, the medicine's not working, the, the doctors don't have answers, wh- whatever it is, or the doctors do have answers and it looks grim. Maybe all of those things are true. They're swirling around. Maybe it's a broken relationship and, and people who, boy, they just, they, they just don't represent you fairly. They, uh, they're not listening to you. You feel underrepresented. You feel attacked. You feel rid- ridiculed. Maybe those things are happening around you. Or maybe it's what's happening in the world today. I actually didn't plan on sharing this, but I think I will and I won't charge anything extra. Okay, is that fair? The Supreme Court uh, recently ruled on the validity of uh, Roe v. Wade and made abortion um, not constitutional, right? So states, we can do that. We can do that for for Christ's sake, for the sake of life. But hear me out on this. So uh, as soon as that news came... I gotta tell you, this is what happened in my mind and heart, the swirling around stuff. I have family members that are on the other side of this position, and I just thought of how awkward it's going to be uh, for Thanksgiving or Christmas, how, how difficult some of those conversations are going to be. I kinda got a, I don't know, my stomach started to turn a little bit because I thought, I love these people, and I know that there's an attack coming and I'm not really looking forward to that. So, I reached out. And I, and I just thought, you know what? Uh, and uh, friends, I, this is a good example. I'm not always the good example, okay? I want to just be upfront with you about that reality. But in this case, I was. And, and so I reached out recognizing, God, you're my refuge. Uh, a, a family member and made some comments uh, about where they stood. And I thought, you know what, let's go into this with some grace and mercy and dialogue, right? Instead of me making this about pro, pro-life, pro-choice, let's just go into it with dialogue and let's see what happens. And so as I'm talking to my family member, I start to realize it's not a matter of uh, pro-life and pro-choice. That as she begins to talk, she's, she's concerned, and this is a person who is not of faith, okay? So just keep that in mind. But as we begin to talk, her concerns are more on the foster care system. Her concerns are on adoption and, and, and the flooding that would occur. And I'm like, well, well, wait a minute. This, uh, I mean, we can talk about uh, abortion and stuff, but we don't, we don't really need to because we're, you're really concerned about life now. So let's talk about life now. I got to give some illustrations of believers who are, who are working in the foster care system. They're just a few illustrations, but some illustrations nonetheless where God has used them to bring life to situations that, that death was certainly going to happen. I could start, already start to sense an ease started talking about adoptions, and I started talking about how there, there are people even within the church, people of faith who have stepped into these adoptions and actually are, are waiting for days like today. She started to relax a little bit. What am I saying? I'm saying that she's starting to hear the winds that are swirling around. They're not just swirling around for believers. They're swirling around for everybody. And as we enter into these times, we can celebrate life. Absolutely. And we should. Also, we can be tender and careful and merciful and loving as we hear the other side. And listen closely to what are you really trying to say here? And as we listen to that, we're able to step out in faith and maybe even embrace them into God's refuge. Maybe in a way that they've never heard the gospel before. This is a part of what we get, and that's certainly a part of what was happening in the fear that David is dealing with. I mean, it wasn't just fear for David, it's fear for everybody. We live in those times that it's not just fear for the church, it's fear for everybody. So let's talk. And let's love, but let's lead in faith and love, right? Church, are you hearing me? Do you hear my heart on this? Oh, man. But we have to get back to the facts. Uh, This fear is always going to be there. It's always been there. Probably always going to be there. If it's not this issue, it's going to be another issue. Someone said once, uh, we're either walking into a storm through a storm or out of a storm, <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, there, there is that sort of sentiment in our lives, and everyone else is as well. So, what facts do we have? Where, where do we go? David goes in this direction. He immediately takes it off of the situation and onto the Lord. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is present." Well, I mentioned earlier that there was the first temple built by Solomon, right? And that the Shekinah glory of God dwelt there. And then there's the second temple that we see in the New Testament. And and Jesus dwells there. Even Jesus makes this comment in John chapter 2. He says, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. Talking about his body. Talking about himself, that he's the temple well, that uniquely has been passed on to the church, so much so that when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in First Corinthians chapter six, starting at verse nineteen through twenty, uh, Paul refers to the believer. He says. Do you not know that your body is a temple of God? It's the place where God dwells. If you've received Jesus as your Savior, if if you have called on the Lord, if you have entered into that faith relationship with Him, then the Spirit of God indwells you, and therefore you are the temple. The first temple, the Father dwells. The second temple, the Son dwells. The third temple, the Spirit dwells. And we experience him now. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and hope to have some sort of sacrificial system that is waiting for us. That from the outside we get to experience God. We can experience God daily united together in Christ because his Spirit dwells in us. That's a beautiful thing. David identifies that uh, intuitively because of the work of the spirit in his life. And then he goes on to say the Lord, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Don't forget the reign of God. God's in control. But these winds and waves, this situation that I live in, my health, my relationships, the government. (laughs) What about God? God didn't go, oh, I didn't know that was happening. (laughs) Why didn't somebody tell me? Uh, He does not do that. He is keenly aware of what is happening. In fact, he's engaged in what is happening. It may be to the glory of God what is happening. It could be that God knows more than we know about what is happening. And David identifies that. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And he sees. He sees the justice and the injustice. He sees our actions and the purpose, the reason, the motivation of those actions. God sees. And then he goes on to say, and he tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Friends, don't be on that side of of things. I remember a couple times uh, growing up, my mom would say things. One, one time in particular, we had this little pool. You know those little blue pools? Those little plastic pools? We had one of those. And on a uh, hot Hoosier summer day, uh, we were. I was in that pool. And I was having a great time. And my mom came out and she said, don't splash me. <laughs> I heard splash me. That's what I heard. Uh, I splashed her. And my mom, who's the disciplinarian, had no problem communicating to me that I was wrong. And I remember thinking, I wish I wouldn't have done that. (laughs) There were some consequences I wasn't really ready to pay in that moment on that hot Hoosier summer day. I don't want to be on that side of my mom. I don't want to be on that side of God. I want God to say, I hate your actions, Kenny. I hate them. What does it matter? Why do you love violence? Why? I don't want to be on that. And the Lord doesn't want his church to be on that side either. And so the Lord tests. I'm going to bop down to verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He's the alms giver. He is the, the giver of all good things, we're told. For those who are in desperate need, which is everybody. <laughs> Some of us just are more aware of it than others. But all of us are in desperate need. Like we are literally going to die eternally and completely without the work of god in our lives which is exactly why god was willing to come in the flesh that he was willing to die on the cross for our sins that he conquered sin and death and gives life to anybody who would call on him it's it's his alms to us and once we receive those alms we are now not just indebted to him but indebted to anybody else who would be in need and in need of such alms and so we offer that freely As it's been given to us freely, we offer that freely to others. This idea that the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds because they reflect him. How can we be children of God if we don't reflect the image of God? And we reflect him in those places. Our responsibility to live out this faith and to share this faith with our very words is necessary as a a step of faith. That those around us would understand, oh, this is what faith looks like. This is how it's lived out. This is how I apply it. Because I see godly men and godly women who love the Lord, who are willing to offer this kind of righteous, this righteousness to other people. Got it. Thank you. And then it says, the upright shall behold his face. Those who walk in such ways can see where God is going. Not just see God, though that would be enough, but we can see where God is going. His word reveals that, and we're able to uniquely see God is at work in this place. And I want to join him in this work. I want to walk where he's walking, even if it's scary, because I take refuge in this God. Hmm. As the worship team comes up here in just a moment, I want to encourage us as we transition our heart and prepare for communion to ask a few of these questions. A few of these questions that are associated uh, with Psalm chapter 11. If you would look through them with me, I'd appreciate that. Uh, And as we prepare our hearts. First question, what fears keep me from living out my faith? What fears keep me from, what is going on in my world? If I was just a little healthier, maybe I would. Uh, If this relationship wasn't as bad, then maybe I would. If my job would just, then I would. If only this. What are those fears? Let's just be honest with ourselves and address those fears. What facts do I need to know and believe that help my faith? What facts? I'll give you some. For example, I know that God is love. I know that God does love me. I know that God is just. I know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that his word is true. And because I know those things, there are elements of my faith that I that I can just kind of go to relatively easily because I know some facts. This God is good. This God is love. This God is just. This God is holy. This God is calling me to himself to follow him where he's going. I want to be obedient to that. Why? Because of the facts. What are those facts that you can hold on to? What is our next step of faith? What is our next step? For some of us, it may be simply just to receive Christ as our Savior. Like, I've been holding off, uh, but I I get it. I need to respond to Jesus. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand that I can't save myself. It makes sense. Uh, But even more so, I know that I'm lost without God, and I need to repent. And that means to turn away from the direction I'm going. I'm convinced that is the wrong way, and I'm turning towards God. And I'm repenting and turning towards God. That, That may be you today. To confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ rose Jesus from that Christ was rose from the dead. Uh, we may need that. That may be your step of faith. For others, it may be a little bit different today. Your next step of faith might be to public acknowledge Jesus as your Savior in believers' baptism. Awesome. There are some baptisms coming up relatively soon. For others, it may be to find a place to serve. Awesome. There are places to serve. What is that next step of faith? As we prepare our hearts for communion, uh, communion or the Lord's Supper has been given to the church and has been practiced by the church from the very beginning. To one, to say, am I actually following Jesus? And if so, then I'm going to participate. And do I have any unconfessed sin? And if so, I'm going to confess it, recognizing that God's word is true and that as I confess my sin, God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And communion is a time for us to calibrate our hearts to Christ. And so I want to encourage you to do that. After you've done so, you are free to go to the station that's nearest you to get both the cup and the bread and return to your seat. And at the end of this next song, we'll come together and participate. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is life. And uh, even today, we are thankful for the testimony of men like David, who didn't always walk this thing perfectly, blew it many times, but also loved you and repented and came to you. And so, Lord, in like manner, we come to you today. We're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for sins forgiven. We're thankful that we can stand before you rightly because of your work, because of the alms that you have given that we receive. Not something that we could earn. And so, Lord, in you we take refuge. And so today, Lord, as we do just that, we ask that you would uh, clean our hearts, that you would create in us A pure heart, oh God. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.